This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fourth episode of season 12. Before we get into the story, as always, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know there's a saying, apparently, in New Zealand that people sometimes utter after hearing someone break wind in public. Now, I'm sorry to be so crass, but this was sent to me by Kieran on X. The saying is, an empty house is better than a bad tenant, which apparently is an old Irish proverb with obviously a completely different meaning. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. A committee is a group of people who individually can do nothing, but as a group decide nothing can be done. That was said by Sir Ranulph Fiennes. Listener Pauline requested this case via a review on BritishMurders.com all the way back in January 2023. We're in the town of Swinton this week, not to be confused with the Wiltshire town of Swindon. Swinton, with a T, is located in the city of Salford area of Greater Manchester. It's located 5 miles northwest of Manchester, 74 miles north of Birmingham and 167 miles northwest of London. Here are your five quickfire facts about Swinton. Number one, the name Swinton comes from Old English and means swine town because back in the day, pig farming was a common occupation. Number two, Swinton was an important mill town once upon a time and was also known for its coal mines which provided fuel for brick making and cotton spinning. The last coal mine, Agecroft Colliery, closed in the early 90s. Number three, speaking of bricks, Swinton bricks were used to build the Bridgewater Canal, which connects the towns of Runcorn and Lee in Cheshire and Greater Manchester, respectively. Number four, Academy Award-winning actor Sir Ben Kingsley grew up on a street in the former borough of Swinton and Pendlebury. The city of Salford succeeded the area in the 70s. And number five, Madchester legend Sean Ryder, lead singer of Happy Mondays, attended the town St Ambrose Barlow RC High School. According to a 2014 estimate, Swinton's population is just under 23,000. I'm going to begin the story this week by discussing the infamous North-South Divide, which has consistently been a presence in England for centuries. There's a huge debate on where the hypothetical line would be drawn if a precise division was to be made, say if a wall was to be built, but I won't be going down that rabbit hole today. Even now, the average person on the street living in the north would vehemently reject the opportunity to move down south, with the reverse being just as likely. The north has historically been associated with the working class. The Industrial Revolution was located heavily in the north of England, with coal mining being a common job for men of that era. The prices of things up here are also thought of as being far cheaper than equivalent items purchased down south, 
with southern areas, especially London, focusing more on being an important financial area. Industry up north, finance down south. I watched a YouTube video from 1970, filmed in 1970, just a few years after this story's events, by the way, and it didn't half make me laugh. A journalist was asking some northerners what they thought of the south, whilst also being asked stereotypical questions such as, do you only eat fish and chips up here? Do we chuff, was the quick-witted reply from one lady who ran a newsagent's. The responses are brilliant and funny, but they further showcase how much resentment each half of the country has for the other when put on the defensive. Granted, now it's probably not as bad as it was back in the 70s, but it still kind of applies. I suppose it also proves how much pride each side has about their respective half. I mention this seemingly daft argument because the family whose story I'm telling in this episode were originally from Harlow in the county of Essex. Although technically classed as being located in the east of England, Essex most definitely forms part of England's South Divide. Harlow used to be called Harlow Newtown during this story's timeline, the mid-60s, as it was designated as just that, a new town, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Victor Callahan was a 46-year-old college lecturer living in the Essex town with his family. With a total of five kids to look after, Victor had to ensure that he earned as much as he possibly could, but it costs far more to live down south than up north. My research tells me that if you earned £1,000 a year in the 60s, yes, I said a year, you were thought to be doing incredibly well. A grand in 1965 equates to about 14 grand in today's money, just for reference. The average salary for a male teacher back then was £1,244 a year, about 20 grand today, so Victor was doing a fantastic job by those standards in providing for his family. In December 1965, Victor made an extremely difficult decision that so many parents have to make he decided to uproot their lives to Swinton. Why exactly that decision was made, we can only speculate, but logically it was probably to do with Victor securing a lecturer role up north. The family's living costs would be greatly reduced, and their lives would therefore be more comfortable from a financial perspective. In none of the resources I used for my research was the children's mum mentioned, which I did find odd, but again it was the 60s. I just want to point that out because I can't say for sure whether or not she was in the picture, but I'll go out on a limb and assume that she was. Swinton didn't have the best reputation at the time the Callahan family moved there, which Victor likely wasn't aware of. He couldn't just go online and check the stats on a website like Rightmove or Zoopla. Some of the more isolated areas of the town, including fields commonly used by kids as shortcuts to and from school, were associated with being hotspots for indecent activity. The offenders, typically men, would hang around such areas and lay in wait for kids on their own before either indecently exposing themselves in front of the kids or going one step further and indecently assaulting them. To further add to the worry parents will have had in Greater Manchester at that time, or technically Lancashire, as it was part of back then before April 1974, December 1965 was just two months removed from the arrests of British serial child murderers Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. 
Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans were killed by those two between July 1963 and October 1965 with their respective bodies buried on Saddleworth Moor just 16 miles from Swinton as the crow flies. For more on that case please check out my two-part season one special. One of Victor's five children was Juliet Victoria Callahan, who, at the time of this story's events, was just 12 years old. Beginning her first term at Ellesmere County Secondary School after the Christmas break on January 11th, 1966, Juliet did her best to settle in. Depending on her year of birth, information I'm not privy to, she'll have been in either Year 7 or Year 8, so 6th or 7th grade for my North American listeners, but I can't imagine how difficult she must have found the transition from her previous school. Juliet was by definition a shy girl. Her quiet and reserved nature may have made making friends a bit more difficult for her than it would have been for other kids. Add to that being labelled the new kid at school halfway through its academic year, and I think most of us would be lying if we said we'd have found that an easy situation to be in. To circle back to the point about the indecent activity in the area, it seems as though Victor may have been quickly brought up to speed by his colleagues and neighbours because he frequently spoke to Julia about her walks to and from school. She chose to always make that journey on her own. Whether that was because she preferred her own company or hadn't quite bonded with anyone yet is up for debate, but she did it right from the start and never had any issues. Victor would ask Juliet if she had ever been approached by a stranger or been asked to do things that made her feel uncomfortable, to which she plied she never had. Her commutes were uneventful, so Victor held no concern over his daughter continuing to make that journey solo. The school is located just over a mile away from the Callahan family's home on Worsley Road, but to get there, shortcuts would naturally be taken. We all took them as kids, right? Been chased by a farmer through a field full of cows and a ferociously bad-tempered bull, well that was just a rite of passage. It might not have been the same for Juliet, I don't think the fields she was passing through were populated by such cattle, but the ones I mentioned earlier, the cause of such concern to the local parents, were based on a map of the local area, I'm assuming that Juliet will have set off east down Worsley Road, this is to go to school, and then made her way south on Campbell Road before entering Swinton Greenway Park. Travelling through one of Salford's most crucial routes via a footpath at the edge of that park, Juliet would have come out the other side just a few hundred yards from the secondary school. Precisely two months after her first day, Juliet made her way to Ellesmere County on Friday, March 11th, and attended all her lessons as she normally would have. No doubt having that Friday feeling and been excited at the prospect of having two school-free days to look forward to, Juliet gathered her things after a final class of the day and began heading home. After leaving the school grounds at 3.45pm that afternoon, the last sighting of Juliet was at around 4pm as she made her way across Swinton Greenway Park. In the papers, it refers to the area as both Eccles Fields and Swinton Fields, depending on the source, which is perhaps how it is known locally, but I'm confident that Swinton Greenway Park is the correct name of that area, at least it's the correct name now. That Friday, 12-year-old Juliet never made it home. When Victor arrived at the property on Worsley Road, he was immediately concerned when informed that Juliet was not back yet. That was around 7pm. Not aware of any plans being made that would lead to such an event, Victor headed out with Juliet's older brother, 18-year-old Nicholas, to look for her. 
The decision was quickly made to inform the police that Juliet was missing after the two men's search amounted to nothing. At that time, Lancashire Police was the UK's second largest force behind the Met, with an establishment of almost 4,000 officers. Cumbria Constabulary, Greater Manchester Police and Merseyside Police, well they all fell under Lancashire Police back then. They didn't exist. That April 1974 split, that's when it all happened. When called in, the officers undertook a widespread search in the areas surrounding the route Juliet would have attempted to take that afternoon after finishing school. There are quite a few grassland areas surrounding the school, and there's also a couple of golf clubs, so the officers had their work cut out. A few hours passed without any sign of Juliet, but one of the four tracker dogs summoned to help with the search finally found something a few minutes before midnight. The body of a young girl was spotted on an isolated part of Swinton Greenway, just 10 yards or so away from the 7th tee of Swinton Park Golf Club, not too far from East Lancashire Road. In a truly haunting revelation, club members supposedly continued to play their rounds whilst officers conducted searches close by, but I'm not sure how accurate that information is, given it will have been pitch black at the time. It might just be some sensationalist reporting. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The girl, later identified as Juliet, was partly dressed after having some items of clothing removed. Covered in blood, she appeared to have been the victim of a brutal assault by a third party with a sharp object, most likely a knife, being used as a weapon. When formally announcing the discovery of Juliet's body, Detective Chief Superintendent Harold Prescott of Lancashire's CID did not confirm whether or not she'd been sexually assaulted. What he could reveal was that there was no apparent sign of a struggle, which led to the suggestion that Juliet had likely been lured away from her usual route by her attacker to a more isolated area before being subjected to a surprise attack. Another theory was that Juliet had sought refuge beneath a local landmark known as Black Harry Bridge because there was reportedly a hailstorm in the area that afternoon. Juliet may have been approached by her killer there given her pink shell glasses were found a day later between the bridge and where her body were found. I've no idea about the origin of the bridge's name by the way despite my best efforts to find out so forgive me if it's unfavourable. In the immediate aftermath of finding Juliet's body, detectives cordoned off the area and set up a temporary headquarters in a school just off Worsley Road, which I assume will have been Broadoak Primary. As a new school week began on Monday, March 14th, the 600-plus students at Ellesmere County stood in silence as a special commemorative assembly took place in the hall. Led by head teacher Derek Booth, the pupils sang hymns, including Lord Thy Word Abbey Death, in memory of Juliet, before reciting the Lord's Prayer in unison. After the assembly, each of the pupils was questioned individually by a team of 14 detectives about not only their whereabouts on the night of Juliet's murder, but also whether they knew any information that could lead to the capture of the person responsible. The mass questioning came just a day after officers had questioned almost 200 kids at Worsley Road Congregational Church, a Sunday school. Announcing the force's intentions to the children, DCS Prescott attempted to reassure them by saying, If you have seen anything that might help, tell me. He also wanted to let them know they would not get into trouble if they offered any information. 
Whilst those interviews were being conducted, the rest of the 60-strong team of detectives working the case began to chase up other leads. Firstly, a group of about 20 Air Training Corps cadets were known to have been in the area close to where Juliet was found on the night in question. At roughly 7pm, the cadets were on exercises in the park, so they may well have seen or heard something nefarious. Meanwhile, search teams continued their seemingly ever-widening search of the surrounding areas by using things such as electromagnets and mine detectors in the hopes of finding the murder weapon. It was still the force's firm belief that a knife had been used to stab and kill Juliet. An interesting note I discovered whilst researching this case was the abundant presence of yellow ochre in the area where Juliet's body were found. Ochre is a hydrated iron hydroxide or limonite, sometimes referred to as gold ochre given its colour can vary from yellow to deep orange or even brown. It's basically a naturally occurring clay earth pigment which was found in the mud where the tracker dog discovered Juliet's body. Detectives suspected her killer's clothes would likely be stained with the yellow substance as well as blood, so they appealed to parents of children to think back to their kid coming home that Friday afternoon. It would have been hard to miss such stained clothes. Despite the brutality of the attack, it was suggested that anyone from the age of 12 upwards would have been capable of committing Juliet's murder, with all eyes pointing towards it having been a schoolboy. The outcome of Juliet's post-mortem revealed just how devastating and savage her attack had been. She was stabbed more than 50 times in the chest, with each incision thought to have come from a short but very sharp blade. Her official cause of death was hemorrhage from multiple stab wounds. Carrying a penknife was common for boys at the time, and given the description of the incisions, police narrowed down on such an instrument as being the likely murder weapon. The search soon expanded to other schools in the local area, which led to detectives confiscating 50-plus penknives from children they spoke to as the total number of statements gathered exceeded a 1,000. The biggest concern, especially in the wake of Brady and Hindley, was that Juliet's killer could and would strike again. Parents were urged to escort their children to and from school whenever possible, with the whole community being placed on high alert. The park was also being treated as a no-go zone for the time being for completely understandable reasons. Before long, key witness testimony began filtering through the masses of paperwork being gathered at the temporary police HQ. A woman called Audrey Rain informed detectives that she recalled seeing a boy whom she didn't recognise of about 16 rooting around in a garage a few houses away from her home on Chatsworth Road. That was on March 8th, three days before Juliet were murdered. Audrey said, He was dressed in a green combat jacket and when I heard of another report involving a youth in a green anorak, I thought my information might be useful. The problem with old cases such as this is that Audrey was said to live in one of the houses closest to the murder scene. If that's accurate, the golf course in question was not Swinton Park Golf Club, rather it was Worsley Golf Club, situated 1.3 miles away. For me, the route Juliet would have taken, combined with most of the articles reporting on this case, leads me to conclude that Audrey did not live close to the murder scene. However, that's nothing more than pure logical conjecture from me. 
Another clue came when detectives were informed that a maroon and white bicycle was found abandoned around 200 yards from where Juliet's body were found in the days after her murder. It supposedly looked like it belonged to a boy rather than a man, which only added to the detectives' thoughts that a schoolboy had committed this heinous crime. Eventually managed to track down the bike's owner using its frame number, 43382AA, detectives were soon made aware that the bike had been stolen from the Herman family on Worsley Road. Eight-year-old Anthony was the true owner, but his treasured bike had been nicked a few weeks earlier. No police report had been made, though. If nothing else, that discovery led to detectives believing that the bike thief was also Juliet's murder, but they were no closer to identifying him. Throughout the course of interviewing all those kids, one 13-year-old told detectives that he recalled seeing a man he described as being very shabby in the area where Juliet's body were found. That was between 4 and 4.30pm on March 11th. The middle-aged man was said to have been wearing a dark overcoat that almost went down to his ankles and shoes that were badly worn down at the heels. Recognising that bizarre description, a truck driver stopped off at a police station in the Staffordshire town of Stone to inform them that he'd recently picked up a hitchhiker matching that description in Swinton. An almost 90-mile round trip was then undertaken by two detectives who managed to not only track the shabby man down, but also rule him out as a suspect. As Juliet's funeral came and went on March 18th, just a week after her death, her devastated family would only have to wait three more days until the police finally had someone in custody. Dive teams were still searching a pond on Swinton Golf Course in search of the murder weapon, but detectives had formally charged a 16-year-old boy with Juliet's murder after he first wrote and signed a statement in the presence of his mum. The statement was a run-of-the-mill one as far as I can tell, much like the hundreds of other kids had been required to complete, but just a few hours after handing it over, he was arrested. As he was formally cautioned and asked if he wanted to make a statement, the boy wrote a reply which read, No, I haven't anything to say. Here's where the story goes a bit cold really, because there's absolutely no newspaper reports available between March and July 1966. It doesn't say anywhere precisely why the police suddenly arrested the teenager or whether or not they found a murder weapon. It's frustrating because although I have the outcome of the case, a lot of the pieces are missing, which has left me rather unsatisfied, I must admit. I share your frustration, believe me. The conclusion of this story came in July when 16-year-old Gordon Wheeler was found guilty of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility at Manchester Crown Court. Having previously pleaded not guilty to murder but admitting manslaughter, Mr Justice Cusack ordered Wheeler to be detained at Broadmoor indefinitely. Wheeler's defence counsel made an application for his name not to be used in newspaper reports, but the judge denied it and said, I am reluctant to make such an order. I do not think this trial should be conducted with any degree of secrecy whatsoever. I mentioned earlier that DCS Prescott did not say if Juliet had been sexually assaulted. I'll end by letting you know that case prosecutor John Corcoran did confirm in court that there was no evidence of sexual interference. And that was the story of the murder, technically manslaughter, of Juliet Callahan. Thanks again, Pauline, for requesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I've no idea what happened to Wheeler after he was sent to Broadmoor though, so if anyone can enlighten me, 
please get in touch. This week's four new reviews are as follows. No nickname is accepted. Left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts Australia. It reads, just discovered this podcast and love it. I'm on long service and this will be my go-to binge. KT Blossom left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts Australia. It reads, just love listening to British Murders, one of my favourite podcasts. The stories are told in a direct and respectful manner and your one-liners are hilarious. Not sure about that, KT. Mblank70 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts USA. It reads, Stu, I've been listening for a couple of years now. My wife, baby, and I listen while we're taking walks in the neighbourhood. We found your show by chance and became absolutely addicted to it. I love your accent as well as your objective manner of delivering the story. Your matter-of-fact approach and soothing voice and simple delivery make your podcast my favourite. I hope to share a beer with you one day when we venture across the pond. Keep up the outstanding work. Finally, Tiger Dude 2 left a five-star review on Apple Podcast Canada. It reads, Love this show and format. Wasn't sure at first, but OMG, Stuart is great to listen to. I love his humour, accents, the show's preamble, and how he makes it interesting right through to the end. The show keeps me company while walking, and usually I get through two or three episodes. Keep up the great job, and I'm so happy I found the show. Thank you, no nickname is accepted, KT Blossom, Mblank70, and Tiger Dude 2 for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to patreon.com slash BritishMurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes, as well as my British Murders Weekly Journal series. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways from time to time, as one currently running until midnight tonight, and you'll get some thank you goodies for signing up as well. Hello and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Helen Wiley, Mish White, Terry burke Wolin, Meg Wiggins, Karina Howland, Katrin Hughes and Tara James. If you prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. That's what DJ did. Thank you for buying me three beers on there. The message left was, cheers for all your good work. If you have a case suggestion, please send it to contact at britishmurders.com or message me on social media. When your episode eventually gets covered, you will get a thank you shout out. Unless you don't want one, just let me know if you'd rather remain anonymous. And that does us for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.